Welcome. I'm uh, Paul Pepys. I'm the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. And I want to um, welcome you to this, the fourth in our public lecture series this year on the topic of belonging. Um, we've invited the speakers in our belonging series to apply their diverse perspectives, experiences, and expertise to our theme in hopes of fostering productive conversations about what it means to belong, who decides who belongs, and how to create more inclusive systems for everyone. Fittingly, given our focus on the promise and problem of belonging, I want now to give our customary land acknowledgement. The University of Oregon is located on Kalapuya Ilahi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Following treaties between 1851 and 1855, Kalapuya people were dispossessed of their indigenous homeland by the United States government and forcibly removed to the coast reservation in Western Oregon. Today, Kalapuya descendants are primarily citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde, the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, and they continue to make important contributions to their communities, to the U of O, to Oregon, and to the world. In following the indigenous protocol of acknowledging the original people of the land we occupy, we also extend our respect to the nine federally recognized indigenous nations of Oregon, the Burns Paiute tribe, the Confederated tribes of the Coos, Lower Umpqua, and Suslaw Indians, the Confederated tribes of the Grand Ronde, the Confederated tribes of Siletz Indians, the Confederated tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, the Confederated tribes of Warm Springs, the Coquel Indian tribe, and the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua, Umpqua tribe of Indians and the Klamath tribes. We express our respect to the many more tribes who have ancestral connections to this territory, as well as to all other displaced indigenous peoples who call this place that we call Oregon home. Before I uh, formally introduce tonight's speaker, I have a couple of final announcements. At our information table, which is right out there, you can find out about uh, upcoming uh, Oregon Humanities Center sponsored and co-sponsored events and can sign up for our mailing list. Our speaker, uh, distinguished professor Natalia Molina has graciously, graciously agreed to take questions following the talk. Because we're live streaming the lecture, people will need to come to the microphones in the aisles uh, to ask questions and to speak directly into the mics. To maximize audience opportunities to ask questions, please keep your question as concise as possible and please make sure to ask a question. Uh, as always, I need to offer uh, my uh, uh, usual thank yous. Thanks first to the Oregon Humanities Center's incredible staff, our associate director, Gina Turner, our program coordinator, Melissa Gustafson, our communications coordinator, Peg Fries-Gearhart, and our student assistants, Eliana Friedman and uh, Edwin Delgado. Thanks to our collaborators from the Ford Alumni Center and University Advancement, EMU Events Serv Services, and the UO Media Services for their logistical and technical support. Last but not least, many thanks to our generous donors. If you want to join them in supporting the OHC and our public and research programs, you can visit our website, ohc.uoregon.edu. I'm now delighted to introduce tonight's speaker, Natalia Molina, who will deliver the 2022-2023 Luther and Dorothy Cressman Lecture in the Humanities. The Cressman Lecture was inaugurated in 1994 with a generous bequest from the late UO anthropology professor and archaeologist, Luther S. Cressman. 
The Cressman Lectureship's goal is the presentation and illumination of fundamental humanities issues confronting societies centrally occupied with science, technology, and business. The inaugural Cressman Lecture was delivered by N. Scott Mamaday in 1996. Past Cressman lecturers include Bill McKibben, Naomi Klein, Reza Aslan, Maria Inahosa, Ruha Benjamin, and Naomi Oreskes. There are few current scholars and public intellectuals better qualified to illuminate the fundamental humanities issue of belonging than Natalia Molina, distinguished professor of American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Professor Molina's research explores the intertwined histories of race, place, gender, culture, and citizenship. She's the author of three monographs, Fit to be Citizens, Public Health and Race in Los Angeles, 1879 to 1940, How Race is Made in America, Immigration, Citizenship, and the Historical Power of Racial Scripts, and most recently, A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. She co-edited, along with Ramon Guterres and our former colleague at UO, Daniel Mar uh, Martinez-Hosang, the volume Relational Forms of Race, Theory, Method, and Practice. In addition to publishing widely in scholarly journals, she has written for the LA Times, Washington Post, San Diego Union Tribune, and others. A 2020 MacArthur Fellow, Professor Molina has also served on the board of California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities, and she currently serves on several other boards, including the Board of uh, Governors of the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens, and the Scholars Council for the Library of Congress. Tonight, uh, she'll present this year's Cressman Lecture, A Place in the Narrative, Telling Underdocumented Stories. Please join me in welcoming Natalia Molina. Thank you. When I think about belonging, I think storytelling illustrates who belongs and who doesn't in very powerful ways. And I have always loved the power of a story, especially when it's about me. <laughs> I am with my brother. In my family, and I, would, and I will add to that, you know, who doesn't love to hear the story of the day they were born, or said, tell me something about when I was little. And in my family, much of that storytelling took place around my aunt, my tia, my godmother, my Nina Vicky's kitchen table. Those stories could take us across borders, back generations, back to Mexico, back to the US, and really centered and taught me what it meant to see oneself reflected in history, find their place in history, what it meant to be an immigrant, what it meant to strive for something larger than oneself, and to belong. And therefore, it was very startling, troubling, even disconcerting as a child when then I started to go out in the wider world and didn't see myself reflected in these histories after feeling so grounded with my family. This was the case, and we look at things like, and I know people here are filmmakers um, and interested in film like Kat, who I met in this morning's class. Uh, 
we see this in film where Latinos are represented uh, as in speaking rules only 4%. We see this in history. We see this in novels. Um, and so I wanted to know, you know, what could we do to shape these stories? So I set about telling stories of the underdocumented, starting with when I was an undergraduate. And I learned a lot about the ways that undergraduates here are doing it today. They blew me away. They would ask me questions. I'm like, I think you answered it. <laughs> uh, this is a story. Uh, this is an you know, aerial view of uh, the downtown LA junction of the Harbor Freeway, what we now call the East Los Angeles Freeway. I went to UCLA uh, to set to figure out how to tell this larger story, one in which those included normally one of which would include those normally on the margins, whom I called underdocumented in my work. I hadn't considered that it wasn't just history books that marginalized these groups, but the archives as well. When trying to paint a picture of a community, historians rely on documents using their training. These might include official records, uh, what we call kind of those top-down records from government officials, from presidents, governors, city council people, um, anybody who is seen as important enough to have their archive, to collect papers and think their papers are important enough to contact an archive to say I'd like to deposit them or to be contacted by the archive. In my case, as I looked for those underdocumented, I read correspondence, I compiled census records, I did gene genealogical research, I read through dozens and dozens of years of, of newspapers in English and in Spanish, in mainstream papers, in community papers. I investigated the records of any institution and person that immigrants might have come in contact with. Sometimes immigrants themselves, especially if they'd been like union workers or part of a, a, a activist group, but other times um, by officials, such as judges, police officers, uh, Im immigration officials, city council people, even neighbors. One of my first forays into telling that larger story was doing research on the construction of the Los Angeles Freeway. The movement to build major highways to facilitate the, uh, the commute into and out of urban centers developed in tan tandem with post-war urbanization. I was interested in seeing how this process looked not from the top down, from the city planners, from the highway officials, but from the bottom up, from the community members themselves. There's copious records. Sometimes, as a historian, sometimes you're lucky if you can find a shard of evidence. Sometimes you're buried <laughs> in the evidence. But even if you're buried in it, it's not trying to tell the story that you want to tell. And this was the case with the East Los Angeles Freeway construction that had just so, um, just reams and reams of records of these reports. And yet nowhere in them could I find the people themselves. Even in putting this presentation together, as I looked for a photo of the community to illustrate this to you, I wasn't able to easily access that. So instead, this photo is not just a photo of the freeway, but of, uh, captures the silence in this story. This is a project of East Los Angeles Freeway that would end up displacing 29,000 
people, raising 10,000 homes and disrupting communities. And it became a visual representation uh, of, uh, of dividing the community. It's like the scar that divided the community to today. Since I wanted to tell this history from the bottom up, from the perspective of the community members, I went to somebody who represented the community members, Edward Roybal, who was the first Latino elected to the city council. Um, this is like 100 years after uh, uh, the US had, Mexico had become part of the US to get this one Latino council member in Los Angeles. And so I went into his records. In it, you can find things like uh, the petitions from the Beverly Hills uh, residents who were protesting a freeway being built in their neighborhood. It's these, you know, that bonded paper with that nice embossed letterhead from their attorneys explaining why a freeway could never be built in Beverly Hills because it would disrupt this community. And on, in other files, there were petitions from residents in Boyle Heights in East Los Angeles that were written on these little pieces of paper, handwritten, and you saw how precious even the, the resource of paper was because they would sign it and that they were so marginalized, like even their, their names were on the margins, they circled around. And so I uh, went, I decided to do my honors thesis on this in Los Angeles, uh, as, at UCLA. And I went to Boyle Heights and I had the petition and I had the addresses and so I was walking down the streets, looking at the numbers, thinking, I'm going to knock on their door and see if I can interview them. But when I would get to the address, uh, that's where the freeway would start. So the block ended where the freeway began. So we see that these people who had petitioned that their homes had been raised. That was one of the things that really motivated me then to say, you know, it was my first really official lesson in seeing how history looks, not just from the top down from that city planner report, but from the perspective of community members, as well as that history is not something in the past, but continues to reverberate into the present. I decided to pursue this study, continue these questions, um, this line of questions, looking for the underrepresented as I went into graduate school. And just to give you a sense of kind of how new this was, and we were talking about this earlier as we met, like that we can actually trace you know, this lineage of who's been studying these questions within the field of Chicano studies, um, Chicano history, it, to the recent past, that when I started working on this in 2000, the Los Angeles Times did this article. Um, Mike Davis, who was one of the first urban studies folks who really kind of opened this up, with his book, City of Courts, he recently passed. And there's been this homage, right? Like it marked this moment. When he wrote that book and people started working on LA more, LA, the LA Times wrote this article, um, which my work was included in, right? A new place in history. I think how funny now, I had it, you know, as I got this photo, I was like, oh, I ended up writing my book, A, a Place at the Nayari, right? Kind of thinking about this through line. But, just this idea of like, wow, there are these new histories of these ethnic racial communities in LA. Um, for, you know, if you do ethnic studies, uh, these are things that we, we've been studying for quite some time now. Um, I was recently featured in this other story by the LA Times called the Vanguardia, Vanguardia, like the Vanguard, and like, 
it's like 23 years later. Like at some point, you kind of just want to be part of the status quo. <laughs> like, can you please include us? We don't always want to be on the cutting edge. We would like our stories to be seen as central and not always like, ooh, there's that immigrant story over there. It was very nice, but still. So how do you tell these stories? How do you give people a place in the narrative? Or how do you, not give, but how do you make space for these stories that haven't been told? Um, historians have a, a few kind of methods. And so one I would say is what we call reading against the grain, where you take a source that's supposed to tell you one thing and ask, why is that story being told in that way? Kind of the, the whole who, what, where, when, and why, right? Who is the story told for? And what, what is the purpose? Uh, who is their audience? And so here's an example uh, that I used in my first book. And it's called, uh, it's from the LA Times again. Uh, and the last time I gave a version of this talk, an LA Times journalist was in the audience. And I was like, I did not mean <laughs> to, to signal the LA Times out in this way. But this is kind of one of our official records, right? So we need to tell what are the dominant ways these stories have been told. So this is from the 1910s. It's a time when there's a lot of Mexican immigration to uh, the US, especially the Southwest particularly Los Angeles, by 1930, it becomes the largest um, uh, community of Mexicans living outside of only of Mexico City. And there's a can there are various campaigns as part of public health movements, one could even argue as part of eugenics movements, to show what place Mexican immigrants have in US society now as um, uh, being told how we, how we define that place through public health. And through these public health and medical narratives, one of the things that they conclude is that uh, Mexicans need to be Americanized, that public health is one of the ways to do this. There need to be programs where they're taught uh, how, to, you know, uh, how, how to speak English, how to cook Americanized foods. And so you know, there's... Um, campaigns also about sanitation, which is what this article is tapping into, what they call better baby clinics. But if you read their other sources, you see that Mexicans are also resisting these clinics. And so their conclusion is, see, we were right. They don't care. Another conclusion, if you read it against the grain, is they know the ways in which you're speaking against these communities and the narratives you have, and they're choosing not to engage. There's not really anything in it for them um, should they choose to engage. Another way we might think about telling these stories is telling a story that the archive is not designed to tell. Right? So it's not like one necessarily goes into an archive and says, can you pull out that file on underdocumented stories? Can you pull out that file on Mexican immigrants who resisted? How about the one on women and LGBTQ communities? I haven't seen that in the books. So this is, a, this is a slide of the National Archives, which is uh, one of the main archives I used for my second book. Uh, the finding reel alone is 32 microfilm reels. I thought for sure this will be my life's work. Um, but you know, kind of plow through it a little bit at a time. And one of the things that came from, from this archive is just seeing that it's not organized in the way that we think about race today. It's organized as people entered the US. And so it might be somebody from Mexico who's entering around uh, 
same time as someone from the Dominican Republic, uh, as someone from New Zealand who's considered indigenous, but what kind of indigenous? And are Mexican indigenous or are they black? And so it became a way of thinking about race kind of relationally, to think like what it means to be Mexican is shaped by what it means um, to be or not be white or black or indigenous or, or Asian. Um, it was a way of the way that we evaluate race, right? When people look at you and they're like, you look this, what are you? Or when someone says, where are you from? No, where are you really from? We evaluate race based on all these clues and stories we've been told about race and these structures around race, uh, such as the census. And that, always, that will continually come up in the news as we draw to, to the new census in 2030, where the categories are changing, or as we draw approach 2042, when the US is supposed to become a minority majority country. Um, these stories that we tell about race continue to shape, not just the stories for that group, but other groups. And we don't always see them in the same, in the same picture frame. So part of finding that belonging is about pulling that lens back. And so we can think about the pandemic. Because I wrote a book on public health and race for the pandemic, I was interviewed a lot and was asked a lot about anti-Asian racism. And one of the points that I tried to make was, yes, we could go back you know, to the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and look at the way that Chinese in particular were racially scapegoated, you know, medically scapegoated, made medically racialized. And here we have a cartoon from San Francisco's Chinatown, the Wasp, right? The, these three kind of spirits of, um, of uh, leprosy and smallpox and uh, malaria. And we can trace that through to the 1882 Exclusion Act. We can trace that through through uh, alien land law acts, Japanese internment. But what if we go back to that slide I originally showed you? in terms of health starts with a race, uh, health starts with a tub. And we start to see the ways in which that racialization of Asian Americans was also kept alive through the racialization of other groups, right? Not even though they're talking about different groups, it's still a medicalized racialization of a category that we consider other. So for the past 20 years now, I've examined how concepts of race notions of citizenship and questions of belonging emerge from narratives of racial difference that have been applied to distinct immigrant groups in the US over time. I've shed light on reoccurring patterns of discrimination and shown how practices at the city and regional uh, level are Im implemented over a century ago, continue to influence perceptions and policies at the national level. I've also been interested in how to tell that story at the local level. Um, I've mentioned Los Angeles for the reasons that it was once Mexico, for the reasons that by 1930 it had the largest um, population, second only to Mexico City. But also because it is a story that tells us, the history of LA is a story that tells us who they see as belonging, right? Um, in so many ways, the history of LA reads like a PR campaign and that is in part because it was. Uh, LA was always telling us who belonged. Boosters promoted it as a land of sunshine, one filled with beautiful people, those who belonged, um, and who boosters worked hard to attract. 
But even in this narrative, um, yeah, this beautiful, pe beautiful people narrative in LA, there was always room even for diseased bodies, even for non-normative non -normative bodies, such as those that they strove to attract um, who had TB, who they told you can come to our sanitariums and the health-giving climate and these facilities will make you better. This was not the case for Mexicans. Uh, Mexicans ended up either being hyper-visible and so we can think about this orange crate label, right? this Fiesta brand that really celebrates this idea of a Spanish fantasy past, one that kind of erases the Mexican era, to in other ways that they were hyper-visible, where Mexicans now are, um, or I'm sorry, hyper-visible to invisible. This is also an era where Mexicans came to the US and uh, you know, almost a million during the Mexican Revolution. And yet very few of us have a sense of that history of the labor they performed on railroads uh, and agriculture, especially as different crops were growing in ways they hadn't before because of the advent of water and irrigation systems. Um, this was the kind of story that did, did not become part of the narrative in which these groups weren't seen as belonging but instead were kind of kept invisible. So whichever form it took, hyper-visible or invisible, they still ended up as these flattened stereotypes. Using the archives helped me tell a story of policy formation, but for this most recent book, I also wanted to tell the story of agency, of joy, of underdocumented communities which I generally not found through these traditional sources. The popular picture of an immigrant experience is built on the stereotype of people who kept their heads down, worked hard, and sacrificed their own lives for the betterment of their children. Many new immigrants did these things, but when these are the only story that the culture tells, they reinforced, they reinforced stereotypes of Latinos as quiet laborers, of service workers on the margins of society, neither deserving space and attention and belonging, let alone civil rights. My most recent book, A Place at the Nayarit, tells the story of my grandmother, Natalia Barraza, who opened the Nayarit, a Mexican restaurant in Echo Park in LA. The Nayarit was much more than a popular eating spot. It was an urban anchor for a robust community, a gathering space where ethnic Mexican workers and customers connected with their taste of their patria chica, their small country, one another, and the city they now called home. Together, the employees and customers of the Nayarit maintained ties to their old homes while providing one another safety and support. In a world that sought to reduce Mexican immigrants to invisible labor, the Nayarit was a place where people could become visible once again, where they could speak out, claim space, and belong. And so I really wanted to advance a few concepts in the book, because what my goal is, is I hope other people use these tools to tell their own stories. I've developed high school curriculum, I've been giving talks on this. Um, my last book, I developed curriculum with the Gilder Lerman Center, and I do workshops with K through 12 teachers. And so I really see this as, you know, this isn't just about Latino history. I mean, 
I live in Los Angeles right now. We have about 80 different nationalities, 80 different languages spoken. There's, you know, there's no way that like one textbook is going to cover all these groups. But if we think about how we teach history, how we teach ethnic studies, if we give people tools to tell their own stories, and then in some way through digital humanities, whatever it is, mapping, collect them all, imagine the power of the storytelling there. What a way to shape how people belong when they themselves can write the narrative. And so I think about things like placemakers. The subjects of this book, are mo uh, most of them are working class immigrants who did not arrive in the US speaking English um, and yet endeavored to make places their own. Their sense of connection to or alienation from their home was often about feeling rooted in a particular place, a neighborhood, a park, a newsstand, a restaurant. They went to work, worshiped in church, uh, attended school, ate out, and in Doña Natalia's case, opened a restaurant where people could come together for labor, leisure, and access to a ready-made social network. They were placemakers. I'm also interested in the concept of urban anchors. And, and I have to tell you, just to give you a sense of like the ways that people have been coming out of the woodwork telling me their stories, the person in that car, the driver of that car, his daughter contacted me and said, that's my dad. And we went to the Nayadi. I just, I have an aunt. I, I can tell you all kinds of stories afterwards. I have this new aunt who nobody knew existed, and we've checked all these records, and it, it seems to be legit. Um, but this idea of urban anchors, right? Uh, in order to see how racialized people are placemakers, we need to turn to semi-public spaces beauty salons and barbershops, bars and coffee shops, bookstores, bowling alleys, places where community members congregate on a regular, sometimes daily basis, and sometimes for hours at a time. These spaces help communities find them moorings. This is why I call them urban anchors. Though such businesses are certainly economic actors, the placemaking that goes on in them is social and cultural, sustained by countless acts of everyday life that build and sustain effective relationships in a particular time and place, eating, laughing, gossiping, debating, celebrating, claiming space, belonging, forging community. If we treat placemaking more expansively, we can see the city not just as it might look from a bench in the park or on a city planning map, but as people used it. I, for me, the idea of using restaurants as thinking about it as public space, even though it is an economic, economic actor, is so important when we think about the ways in which our spaces are segregated, right? Even when we think about the Southwest, you know, we tend to think of segregation as happening in the South um, and as not being part of the story of a progressive state like, like Los Angeles or um, a city like LA, and yet schools, theaters, beaches, um, public pools were segregated. And I did a book reading at the Autry Museum um, where we just uh, talked about this very briefly and this man came up to me afterwards and said, my dad worked at the Simons Brickyard plant, uh, which was a, a place in Los Angeles where they made bricks but also people could live. And on their days off, they liked to go to the pool, but they couldn't because they weren't allowed to go to the public pool unless it was the day before it was drained. Uh, that, you know, playing on this idea that Mexicans were, were dirty. Again, that health starts with a tub. 
that law may have gone away, that campaign, campaign may have gone a, 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 away, but that cultural narrative, that story of who belongs and why they don't belong uh, con continued, right? So she said that, or he told me that his, uh, that he, that his dad would, and his friends would um, go into the brickyard before they went to the pool the day it was before it was drained and cover themselves in the dick brick dust so that when they jumped in the pool, they could dirty the pool. Like if you're gonna say we're dirty Mexicans, we're going to embrace this racial stereotype. <laughs> so this is a story that, um, telling that story of the underdocumented, I will admit to you, took me a while to tell because I hadn't seen it even in uh, Chicano history, in Latino history to some extent. I was used to much of that story being told about men. And here I had the story about a woman, right? About my grandmother, about being this matriarch, which I was interested in, but it was difficult to get that history. Um, much of those stories are often about segregation uh, or, or take place in ethnic enclaves because we not only do our segregating through, um, through people, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, we'd say who can belong, but it's very place-based, right? So if you ask, you know, how do you know segregation's happening? It's, it's about taking that space. And so what happens is both in our literature, we tend to do ethnic studies as Latino history, African-American history, Asian-American history, indigenous history or studies. And so many of the stories also end up being siloed in that way. And so here I was talking about a place like Echo Park in a city like LA. And this is um, the homeowner's loan corporation map of 1939 in LA. It's one in which people received loans based on whether an area was seen as desirable or undesirable. And so it was mapped. A green area was good, going down to a red area. Um, and so you get a sense even from the map how heavily segregated LA was. So many of the books and stories and histories that came out about Latinos in Los Angeles or many places throughout the US in those you know, first waves of Latino history uh, that were told were told through an ethnic barrio, um, not as a multiracial, multi-ethnic space. And in places like Echo Park, what it meant to be Mexican was very much shaped by who their neighbors were. Um, here, you know, the restaurants, even just if you look at the businesses reflected at this time, they were Yugoslavian, they were um, Italian, they were French, and these neighbors, uh, they were Jewish. Uh, my grandmother's landlord was Jewish. Um, had also fled because of a, a war and felt a connection to her. And so there were ways in which they connected. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not trying to paint Echo Park as a utopia because there were these groups, but you certainly see, even in places like LA, that kind of rampant discrimination. So it wasn't a racial utopia, but it also wasn't a place where people burned across on your, your lawn or burned across on her lawn. Um, partly also, she was an African-American. There's a way in which um, historians have talked about Latinos being able to walk the color line, um, but you know, for Asian-Americans as well. And you know, that we see this discrimination directed at them. Another way that we can tell the story of the underdocumented is through the food. 
if we think back to that slide that I showed you of that fiesta, of the crate label, that Spanish fantasy past, it's also reflected in the food that was popularized, right? So here's a, me a menu of a very successful urban anchor that still exists in LA, El Cholo. Um, if we look at the ways in which it became popular, we see that it has Spanish-Mexican dishes. My favorite one to always point out is the um, Mexican spaghetti. You know, <laughs> um, I remember even in our house, we called it Spanish rice. I was like, no one here is Spanish. Where are we getting this from? I think that was probably the first uh, clue that I was probably going to become somebody who told these underdocumented stories, because I was like five years old. like. We're not Spanish. Like, where is this coming from? And so the, my, my grandmother's menu was very much uh, a different kind of food that, was, that, she, that um, she wanted to, to put forth. One that, um, you know, either because of her identity and or class, she had, you know, pig's feet in, in salsa. She had um, much, you know, kind of economic cuts of meat. She had these uh, fish dish called pescado sarandiado when it was available, because of course these ingredients aren't always available. And so when we talk about like, was the food authentic? That's a hard question to answer because the ingredients aren't always available. But she would go to Tijuana, she would get a lot, as many of the ingredients as she could, and she would make the 240 mile round trip from LA to Tijuana to bring these ingredients. This itself is a political message. Um, again, that same councilman, city, council, uh, city councilman Edward Roybal, he was always trying to combat these stereotypes of Mexicans as being unhealthy and as the food being unhealthy. And here we see, you know, he, you know, he's in a campaign with the California Health Department where he asks, is the Mexican diet adequate? And he says, and he answers his own question, right? Um, Although you can tell he's translating the food, right? A tostada, it's like an open-faced taco. <laughs> so it's the way that people were using a, uh, the food as a bridge, but also that you could use the food as a way to show your identity without compromising that. Um, along with the, the workers that I talked about as placemakers, and I want to tell this story um, because of the discussion we had in class earlier when we were talking about testimonials. Um, not only were they place makers, but they were place takers, meaning that because they were in this ethnic and racial crossroads of Echo Park, that there were people they came into contact that they might not have if they hadn't worked there. Um, I recently gave a talk for the Phi Beta Kappa Honors Commencement cer uh, Induction Ceremony at USC on my campus. I mean, these, these undergrads, right, like you all are doing things that have to be translated to me because <laughs> you're like blending genres, you know, doing all kinds of, you know, bridging different majors, um, just amazing work. And um, we were, you know, so doing that kind of, oh, why did I tell you? I started to tell you a story. So this is what happens when you kind of go off script. I'll go back to my underdoc, okay, so I'll go back to the underdocument in terms of uh, placemakers. Um, ah. So I gave that talk, and the woman who was organizing it, she writes to me, and she says, my mom went to the Nayeri. She was an activist um, in the East LA walkouts, and the Nayeri was where they went before and after talks, after protests, where they would get together, right? So it was this, and some of the, the other people that were, were also like in Latino Lawyers Associations. 
And so the workers themselves could then connect with these groups and then ask them questions, get advice. If they worked at a different restaurant, they might connect to them and go visit them in that workplace. And so this is one example of um, the place taking that went on. These are the workers from you know, the, uh, the dishwasher, uh, one of the waiters, Poncho. And the story I'll tell you about this slide is that um, it was during the pandemic and for the holidays, you know, we couldn't get together. So I delivered food to a lot of the former workers uh, of the Nayani who are now in their 80s and it was before vaccines. It was dangerous to go out. So, you know, they didn't want to go out. So I delivered Thanksgiving meals to them. And I think in that way that people don't want to share their story, even though I'd interviewed some of them, I went to uh, deliver this meal to Poncho and he said, I've been thinking about that book you wrote. And Poncho was probably the second interview I did. And he said, I have a picture. I don't know if you can use it. It's not very good. It's small. It's in black and white. And this was the picture. And so he explained that um, it was one of the dishwasher um, uh, when it was uh, birthday. And they were two brothers. And they were from Zacatecas. And while they had been working in LA now for a few weeks, they'd never gone out. And they said, let's show you a good time. I asked what their last names were. I asked more questions about the dishwashers, but he couldn't tell me. Um, and after we left, my son was with me, and my son's gay, and after we left, um, he had said this in front of Boncho, and Boncho's also gay, I, t I talk about this as queer placemaking in the book. My son said, really? He didn't remember his last name? <laughs> He's practically sitting in his lap. And I just loved, right, I loved also this kind of like, I may do, I may talk about these silences, but it's also my own subjectivity that I bring to this interview. And someone else is seeing this as different, differently than I am. Um, and then the last two points that I'll just tell you very quickly is, while it was mainly a working, an urban anchor for working class, immigrants, it was also a place in which celebrities came through, baseball players, singers, um, including Jaime Harin, who was you know, the, the Spanish language broadcaster for the LA Dodgers uh, for almost 50 years. And one of the things I found fascinating about that in all the interviews I did with those folks was that here were people who had resources, cultural capital, could speak English, a lot of them, and yet they still Talk about, talked about going to a place like this where they could belong, where they could speak Spanish, where they could bump into people that they knew, where they could feel comfortable. And that's even in a world in which they had that cultural capital. And the last thing I'll say is um, writing a book like this took a lot of different methodologies, right? Um, I'm telling a story that's in LA, and yet one of my main sources is a Mexican newspaper, which it kind of didn't hit me until one day, I, as I was not finding story, uh, the sources for this book, and it hit me. Oh, my grandmother, my, grand, my great aunt, who was like a grandmother to me, every week would read the Spanish language paper that she stayed tethered to from Nayarit when it was delivered, and everyone knew that you could not bother her when she was reading this paper, right? Um, it also meant doing oral interviews, but also talking about the silences that if I did the oral interview and then found sources that may have contradicted it, or that we think oral interviews, people are gonna tell you their story, but people will also tell you, 
We knew not to ask that. We never asked such things. Um, we never knew that story if I would find something in the archive. And so I did a re another thing was using material culture, what I had of my grandmother. Because remember, I never met her. The one thing I have is her dishes. So I did this reading um, for a group of mainly Latinos in their 60s, 70s, who hadn't been to college, many of them. And I talked about what it is I could glean about my grandmother from these dishes that she had. And I said, I know you won't necessarily write a book or maybe do a cool Instagram post or a blog. Um, you're not interested in the high school curriculum, but do does your family members, does your, your church members, your coworkers, um, do they know your story? And people started raising their hand. And one woman said, I don't have those dishes that you're talking about that your grandmother had, but I have the ones that my mom and my husband's mom used their blue chip stamps to get one dish every week. And I just gave them to my daughter, and I didn't tell her the story of how her grandmother got it. Another woman's like, I have my, my grandmother's sewer, sewer? No, singer sewing machine. And I made my mom a dress for it that my grandmother taught me how to, you know, how to sew on that machine. I made my mom a dress, and I still have that dress, and I still wear it, even though my mom's gone. And so there are so many ways that we have to tell our stories. I hope you will tell your story, too. Thank you. Hola. <laughs> so um, I haven't had a chance to read the book, and so I'm wondering how um, your, f what is the process by which your family uh, processes how you've written about this restaurant? Um, I think about the reality of, of every day of running a restaurant, and then um, whether they were able to appreciate and witness the community that you are describing mm -hmm. in the book. Such a great question. Um, I had a version of it earlier, but I realized in the way you asked it, I have a totally different answer. <laughs> so one, I think, um, I think I've always taken my family on the journey of what this means. Um, part of it is I'm fortunate that uh, I've given a lot of talks in LA, and so I invite them, so they have some idea of what that means. Um, and especially as this book was, was being written, I took them to the talks. Um, I think there's, you know, obviously there's a, yeah, a lot that's like different to them because I was saying earlier, in a sense, they've always, they've always felt they had a place in history, right? They didn't see themselves reflected. So they're like, when are you going to write that book on us? We have a great story. Um, but one of the things I did then when the book was out was uh, we had a book signing party and one, uh, the, the book was launched at the LA Times Book Festival, so it's almost been a year. And so I invited all of them. And people, and people still do this, like if, especially like if it's a very public talk, like at the Autry Museum or the LA Times Festival. People want to take pictures with them. You know, um, they want to tell their story. But what, when I got the books, anybody that I interviewed, I either at those places or I went and delivered to, the, to them. But I read to them what I wrote. 
And then I said, you know, and so I'd like to give you thanks and give this to you in honor of being a placemaker. And there was something about seeing their story reflected in that way that I think it gave them some importance that they understood that. Um, I think also that the book was also motivated by what I understood what Latino meant by being raised in a multicultural, multiracial space with a very present and out LGBTQ community. And so those stories are also in there in terms of this is why Latino history looks different to me that I wanted to put out there. Even though, you know, even though I'm, I'm not gay, but it changed the way that we formed community and I think it changed the way that people inhabited space. And there was a way in which that framework, I think, I capture in the book. And that meant that I had to put conversations I had with them in the book. Like, the conversations are in there. And I think as historians, we're not used to writing that way. But when, um, you know, I would get asked, you know, my editor would read it and say, what, can you write about that? I'm like, I can't. I, I don't have the evidence for that, but I can tell you why I want that in there. And they're like, well, then just put that. And so it kind of changed it. And so it's not just the sources that are different, but it's the storytelling in the book is different than what I'd done before. Hi, thank you for such a rich uh, conversation. Uh, my name is Jesus. I'm not from the US. I'm originally from Mexico. I've been here for 30 years, lived in Mexico for 21. So you can tell where my question is coming from. Uh, going to school in Texas, I was able to realize that for Mexican-Americans, the issue of, at some point, yeah, with, with the Chicano movement, it was not about integration, really. Mm -hmm. It was about, as you mentioned, about placemaking, mm -hmm. uh, even politically important. Mm -hmm. And however, at least in my perception, mm -hmm. very personally, the issue of memorializing, because there's some tinge of memorialization of you know, belonging, where do we come from? does not seem to have been as important in Texas as seems to be mm. in California, at least in my perception, mm. personally speaking. And I was wondering um, whether um, there's more texture that needs to be brought up to what I just said. I, I would appreciate it. But in this interest for memorializing memory, belonging, is there, if I got it correctly, have you seen a tension, so to speak, with new generations to not just be brought back to those things that can become a stereotype. Mm -hmm. Especially right now when diversity and inclusion is about welcoming others in our space, who's and who's the other, uh, especially in places like you know, a university, mm -hmm. where people want to address you even in Spanish, which I really, really, really hate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know, it's a top, different type of saloing. Creating mm -hmm. your story and your, your narrative can also become a way of creating a new symbol to celebrate mm -hmm. in a rather problematic manner. So I was wondering if you have felt that tension in new generations, and if yes or no, what is your take on this last point that I mentioned? Mm -hmm. That's a lot. That's a great, uh, those are great questions. Um, I'll start actually with something you didn't ask me to comment on, but I am interested in that comparing California and Texas. And so this is kind of just me thinking through it. I don't have like this definitive answer, but one thing, um, just because I also want to talk about her and her important work. So Monica Martinez Munoz has this beautiful book on history and that looks at history and memory, it looks at the violence in Texas uh, called Then Justice Never Leaves You. 
And it's also in part based on her family story that they knew this history of violence. And one of the things that is interesting about that book is that her, she's not saying these are underdocumented stories. She's like, everyone knew. And it's like in the public record in Texas. And I can go into the Dairy Mart, the Dairy Queen, and like in the photos they have up of the Texas Rangers, it's there. And every time there's this um, film representation, it just kind of, no matter all the work we do in remembering, and then they come up with a new series of like the Texas Rangers, it kind of erases that. So I think there, there is something different about Texas. Um, in terms of like what younger people want in terms of placemaking, um, I'm not sure. I would, Kat's looking at me, what do you think? I'm not sure, but I know this. I know that when I speak, to, when, I, when I teach my classes, there is still, the one, there's a, a consistent through line from when I first started teaching, and I'm talking like, whether I'm talking about my classes or whether I'm on a college campus, there's still the sense of how did we not know this? How is, this, how is it that we still don't know these stories? And, and it's personal, because sometimes people are like, is that why my grandfather is a citizen, but my dad isn't? Because they don't even know these stories of deportation in their own families, you know? Um, so I do think there's a consistency there. What I do think is different um, in terms of change is that people do have new ways of telling their stories, and their identities are way more complex. And the categories of how we think about identity in some ways are more complex. And so there is something, if I think about that through line and I think about that change, there is a certain alchemy there that I'm not sure. Um, but when I read the story of like youth and movements, right, even the way that they respond when we think about like, I use social media and hashtags and the way that activism works, there are all these differences. How that translates into how people may want to form belonging, I'm not exactly sure, but I know that question is going to haunt me, and I'm going to come up with a great answer in the morning. <laughs> oh. Bring it home, Lynn. <laughs> I'm going to continue a little bit on okay. what you were just saying. But first of all, I love that this is a story of joy and agency. <laughs> that is so wonderful. You mentioned. Um, and I know you have the section on LGBTQ mm -hmm. community in the book. One question, what other kinds of communities happened at the Nayarit? Mm -hmm. And then what happens when you sit down and eat? Sort of the slow food idea mm -hmm. and the way that you connect over food mm -hmm. and, you know, compared to Grubhub, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, takeout. I mean, all those things, but what, what you were just saying about how movements are built. Well, what's the difference when you meet up for a meal and sit down and go protest and come back and process mm -hmm. versus, you know, connecting through social media? So those are, those are mm -hmm. two questions about the kind of other communities and then the process of sitting and eating mm -hmm. and organizing that happened that might be, I don't know if we still have that. Right. Thank you. Um, you're trying to cover kind of like what storytelling means, but also tell you a little bit of the book. So I, I appreciate you giving me a little space to unpack that. So in terms of other communities, 
because Echo Park is in kind of this geographic crossroads, um, it's a really different experience than what it means to grow up in a, in a mainly Latino community in another part of LA. Um, there, you know, it's on Sunset Boulevard. You can't miss it. And it's easily accessible by trans, public transit, by freeways. Uh, Dodger Stadium sits in its backyard a couple miles uh, to the uh, away is the downtown area. A couple miles more westbound is Hollywood, right? There's this way in which just the geographic location allows it something. The his longer history of Echo Park was one that was, is a bohemian history. It's one that was always founded by placemakers and people on the margins. So um, LGBTQ, LGBTQ community where the Mattachin Society was founded, um, artists and printmakers and people in Hollywood, uh, you know, um, socialists, communists, union workers. So there's this like long history of people that, and people that describe themselves as bohemian, just people like not wanting to fit into that like, oh, it's 19, post-1945, we're all gonna get a, a homeowner's loan mortgage and we're all moving to the valley. This was not those people. They did not have that white flight in the same way. Uh, so you have those communities. You also have a lot of mixed race couples. So it wasn't just that it was Latinos who felt on the margins. You have mixed race couples. So um, one couple that I interviewed, uh, uh, one was Christian, one was Jewish, and so their family ostracized them. And so the Nayani was a place that they felt that they could go and belong. And she told me, even to this day, when we go to a, a Mexican restaurant, we say, it was good, but it wasn't Nayarit good. <laughs> and this will segue into, um, into your other question about food. And so, right, it was the food, and you know, the food, every interview I did, because I also wanted to get out, what was it about this place? What is it about a place like this? Because I think so many of us have a place like this what was it about that? And everybody would start with the interview, almost that first identical sentence. Well, the food, of course, um, because it was regional, because it had the specific taste that you couldn't get somewhere else. Um, and my grandmother was very strategic. So she would put these flyers on people's cars if they had been out at an event. And if you read Anthony Macias' book on, um, I'm forgetting the title, but, uh, his first book, uh, which looks at cultural workers, musicians in LA and all the venues they played. So not just big places, but clubs. So she would, you know, Club, uh, uh, club Virginia and the Montezuma Club and all these places, she would put these flyers so that when you were done with the dance and you were hungry, you would go to her restaurant. Um, and then she would also buy airtime for this Spanish language uh, channel or radio and that announcer then fell in love with the food. So then when he would go MC on Saturday nights at the Million Dollar Theater in downtown LA where everyone came through, um, every Mexican, Latin American, Spanish band came through, then while he was talking, even though you know, he wasn't paid to do this, he'd say, I don't know about you, but when I'm done, I'm going to the Nayarit and I'm gonna get their mancha manteles ribs and oh it's just my favorite right so there was that that and um 
one of the questions that also motivated me to, to write the book and to think how to think about the book was my great colleague at UCSD, Luis Alvarez, he had written this wonderful book on zoot suits. And so he's like, how's a restaurant different than a dance hall? And there is that way in which the time people can spend at a restaurant, right? And that the restaurant changed over time so that you have like the lunch crowd, which is the business crowd during the day. But then at night you have people, uh, and this is what a lot of people said in the interviews, it was the place where you started the evening and ended the evening. So it was also like a temporal experience that you had this urban anchor, but it also anchored your evening. And then um, for some people, it was a restaurant that like this is where they had their Sunday meal. And, and people I interviewed talked about that um, families, you know, in terms of belonging, could make the sign of the cross, would speak in Spanish, would stay there for hours so that you would be at one table with one group, and then your friends would be at another table, and then you would kind of switch. And it just became like a kind of an extension of your home. One of the interviewees said, Fridays, everybody came to our house. but and I forget, on Sundays, we all went to the Nayarit. So there was that way, that kind of forming community. And then the fact that you had these um, um, groups meet there, like whether it was for protest, but the lawyers interested me as well because people talked about asking the attorneys questions. And my grandmother hired two attorneys um, over the course of her lifetime. And she used them for like, like she knew she didn't have that cultural capital, so she used them to get uh, people letters of employment so that when they applied for their visa, they could immigrate with papers. When my aunt got a, a speeding violation, the attorney went with her. She took no chances that she was going to be discriminated against. Uh, one of the attorneys ended up going, he was like one of the first Latinos elected to the California Supreme Court. And so you know, that also gave my mom and my grandmother that cultural capital that as he started moving up, they, he would invite them to his events and they would meet people there. They were able to do things like get a liquor license, which is like one of the hardest things you could do. Um, so there were, and even eventually a little dance floor for the restaurant, which my mom said was like much harder than the liquor license, which she thought was already the most impossible thing to do but they were able to kind of form those connections. And in doing that, it expanded who went, right? The fact that workers, I was always fascinated the fact that workers went to the restaurant when they were done with their shifts. That is where they went to feel a sense of belonging. Hello. So I'm wondering, uh, what is the best way to dig into your research about LA freeways? Uh, my grandma grew up in Lincoln Heights, uh -huh. and um, her childhood home was torn down to build a freeway. Her parents moved, and then their next home was also torn down to build another freeway. And we were just talking about this the other day, and I'd love to bring her some stories. Would that be your honors thesis, your dissertation, or? I think now, now um, there's been a lot more written on it. So works like by Eric Avila, Priscilla Leva, um, and I, I can send these to you. Uh, Eric Avila, Priscilla Leva, um, Don Parsons, and Priscilla Leva has been working hard to uh, get these stories from the community members themselves, people who grew up in Chavez Ravine, and they're going to, I don't know exactly what it's gonna look like, but they're going to open some kind of community museum. I don't know how much of it is 
online and in person. Um, there's a documentary of the people who grew up in Chavez Ravine, so they cannot, I mean, it's not Lincoln Heights, but um, what it meant to lose that. Um, and, you know, even, I bet if you play around with it, and I'm sure you have it here at U of O, but even like ProQuest, to look up Lincoln Heights and Freeway, because so much more of that has been digitized. Uh, because as I was writing about Travis Ravine, even though I've had a lot of research, I still looked up more. And you have these amazing stories, right? Like uh, there's this one story that they, because they also do uh, retrospective pieces. So there's a story of someone who says, you know, third base, that's where my umbilical cord is buried under that, <laughs> right? You have like all these ways in which people are claiming that space of belonging. So that, both the literature has continued to evolve, but the sources as well. I'm pretty sure that you would be able to find that. Oh, and then George Sanchez's new book on Boyle Heights, okay. even though it's not Boyle Heights, it, he's got a chapter on the freeways and it would likely have something on Lincoln Heights. Thank you so much. Sure. Hi, thanks so much for your work and for being here. Um, I have two unrelated questions, if that's okay. One is about access to um, the financial story of access to space, right? Mm -hmm. So part of what you're mm -hmm. pointing out is this larger story of underrepresentation, and part of that is because of who can access capital to rent or buy property and create, a, you know, um, restaurants. And your grandmother was running this restaurant at a time where she couldn't have had a credit card in her own mm -hmm. name. So I was just interested in hearing a little bit more about the financial story of the restaurant. Um, and then also I was wondering about the methodology. You know, it sounds like an extraordinary place, such a beautiful community. Obviously that's true. And just how did you deal with trying to seek out stories that might get at stories that were harder to tell, mm -hmm. stories about um, conflict mm -hmm. or, um, you know, something that they might not want to share with you, especially as a family member. Mm -hmm. um, and so how did you kind of approach those more potentially difficult or negative aspects? I'll start, uh, well, I'll start with this, well, I'll start with the first one. I mean, one, it was amazing to me how people started these businesses, because you just can't anymore. You have like these investors now, um, even, even um, street vendors, right? To get the license, to get the cart, to all the things that people have to do. The margins, the idea that like we celebrate food, but we still want a taco to cost two to three dollars. And there's this great article by uh, Bricia Lopez, whose family has another urban anchor, um, Gelaguetza, which is a Oaxacan restaurant in LA. And she goes through and tells you exactly what the cost is to make a taco, just like how, how small those margins are. Um, there, I, I have a lot of details in the book in terms of like the fact that these were like these really kind of unattractive spaces and that they operated that way for a while and they were allowed to operate that way. You can't do that in the age of Instagram, right? And they kind of developed and then when they had uh, other people open their businesses, you'd see that the people from the restaurant go support them. It's something that just doesn't exist in the same way. Um, Evan Kleinman from uh, KCRW's Good Food wrote this article a while back that talked about, and I think this was even before the pandemic, that talked about uh, now, and especially in places like LA, right, in places where you all, you, there's always a new restaurant, you go to that one place, it doesn't become your urban anchor, because then your next thing is, 
we want, what's the next big place? Who's at this place? So it, part of it is, uh, you know, how they were able to do it, but part of it is the larger thing of they were able to open, operate in, a, in an economy that just doesn't happen anymore. Um, it's just not available in the same way. And in terms of the stories and that conflict, I think one of the things that was, well, one, the book has so much on silences. And that is something I was not used to talking about, right? I'm, the story always has to be co cohesive in this way. And instead, it's a lot of the ways in which you, you run into uh, these dead ends and really acknowledging that. But um, part of it was actually something that, one of the silences was uh, this narrative of people just felt like this was this great time. And here I am, I'm like, there is segregation, there's the Chicano movement, there's the Zoot Suit riots, there's all these things. There's Dodger Stadium, and people had to be kicked out of Chavez Ravine. And sometimes when I would interview people, like, well, what was going on then? And they'd say, well, I was working, I don't know, right? Like, they weren't like glued to the television, they didn't, then didn't check their phones. And so part of it is, at first it was like me resisting that narrative, like again, like, oh my gosh, how am I gonna write a book in which people aren't telling me they were suffering? <laughs> you know, no, like please tell me, like, you know, right? And then part of it is like, what does that mean, right? That it's like there are these certain stories that we wanna talk about that unbelonging, but part of it is also just um, uh, also seeing that this was, you know, I can't expect them, even if it, we're talking about the Watts, Watts uprisings in 1965, I can't expect them to tell me that story when they were working and their lives really were centered in work if they're working like a 12-hour day. They, they're, it, one of the interesting things was they are able to tell me a lot about the RFK assassination because he was assassinated in LA at the Ambassador Hotel and their customers were bartenders at the Ambassador. And so then it became this connection. And a lot of people that I interviewed had a story about that. Even to the point that I was like, is, is that true? Like, you, on the way home, you heard those ambulances and you thought afterwards, like, right? There was a way in which people either were or wanted to be connected to that story. But yet nobody could tell me anything about the Watts uprisings in 1965 when the restaurant was thriving. Right, and there, and there were so many people that I interviewed that were around at that time. So, you know, being comfortable with silence. <laughs> okay, oh, one more? Okay, one more. Uh, and then you owe me a drink. <laughs> hi, Natalia, thank you for also showing all the photos of East LA. I'm from East LA and the conditions were so bad when my family bought a house there in the 60s. Uh, they paid like $13,000 for a house with like a whole like in the roof, um, right near the, the freeway wall. Um, I do have a question. My question is, um, so Nayarit is now like a really popular like independent music dance club concert venue called The Echo. And there's like further down in like the Silver Lake area, there's like Los Globos, which has also become kind of this like hipster dance club. And near me in Boyle Heights, East LA, it's sort of happening to all this gentrification stuff. I'm wondering if any of the folks in those circles have like learned about this book or because it's a whole other history, maybe one they're not willing to grapple with, but there's an aesthetic also interest in what was there, like the old neon and some of the interiors mm -hmm. and things like that. But 
I found it interesting in just the history of how LA is changing that a lot of the old sort of Mexican signage has become like a cool thing for them mm -hmm. to kind of take over in so many ways. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I get contacted by a lot of people that say, you know, I'm friends with the, the owners of the Echo. You know, I'm friends with this. And I think, why are they contacting me? They should contact them, <laughs> right? Um, but part of it is, it's that story that it's not about these same, going back to that question about these businesses. So when you're talking about like Los Globos, a lot of those businesses, they're owned by the same developer. So it's not even like people that we're talking about or like these other people that have an urban anchor that, that's different. Um, and it's the way that that capital, again, just the way you can't open a business in the same way that, so for example, uh, there's that strip of sunset that I'm thinking of that's by Los Globos uh, or, or taste that's been, um, you know, it's this uh, French restaurant that has been around since I think the 20s, but in Echo Park around the same time as my grandmother's restaurant around the 50s, um, maybe a little bit earlier. But that has now been bought out by a developer. And when they buy these spaces, there's supposed to be a certain amount of mixed use uh, you know, uh, housing that's accessible but they are able to get around it with certain rules. So it's just the way that like, it's, this is not just a Latino story, right? And in terms of like this Latino unbelonging, it's the way that one can't find accessible housing in, in cities anymore. I mean, um, and university towns as well. Uh, the way that that land is operating in the way that it favors certain folks, the ways that in which the rules are written a certain way. So it's not longer, no longer about kind of these individual urban anchors, placemakers, but in the same way that certain systems are made invisible to us or kept invisible to us, or we don't see these systems, then we also don't see that. And so I'll give you an example. The book that, um, I was uh, working on for a while, and I've like changed text. I was for a while I was calling it racial blind spots because I'm so fascinated that we are comfortable telling certain stories and wait and want to talk about belonging in certain ways and not others. So, post George Floyd, all the social movements, all the signs. I don't know if you had them here. We had them all over LA. You know, in this house, we believe in science. Uh, love is love. All these kinds of things, right? Like. This, that's about belonging. And yet, our election that we had soon after was about rent control. And that didn't pass in LA, that didn't pass at the California level, that didn't pass in LA, right? Like we had like three elections on that over time. And yet, if you're talking about belonging in a city where the wages don't match, and there's a certain way in which you actually have to structure it in. And so we're comfortable talking about race and belonging in this way of a social movement and our hashtag, but not in terms of actually the rules and the structure that we form around that. Thank you. <laughs>